this is Mona and this is Leah. You're listening to A Devil's Tale. Welcome back to our second episode. So, the story I'm going to tell you is one of the most prolific serial killers in India. This is kind of the story of how over potentially over 20 brides died in bathroom stalls near bus stops. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say brides? Brides, yeah. The last case actually that went to trial was just last year in June 24th. So this is the story of Cyanide Mohan. So he was born 1963, small rural village, and really nothing super traumatic with this guy. His family was pretty poor. They grew up in rural India. They were daily wage laborers working in agriculture. All of his relatives, schoolmates, friends, they all said he was very mild-mannered, reserved, athletic. They didn't really picture him doing anything like this. And he actually goes to become a primary school teacher in the 80s. So he's teaching kids. And like by all accounts, people say he's, he's pretty smart and you know well-mannered. As I was researching and reading some articles, one of them mentioned that while he was teaching, he would have these periods where he was suspended for misdeeds and irregular attendance. What that was, I couldn't really find any information, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. It's almost like the Catholic popes. So I actually kind of have a feeling that something similar was happening with him because he met his first wife while he was teaching primary school. And his first wife, Mary, was in seventh grade when he met her. But they didn't get married until she was 18. Did they date? No idea. So I was trying to look more into it. I couldn't find it, but I I thought it was weird. So they did get divorced, though. And then he goes on to an arranged marriage, and he has two kids with this woman. And then he gets married again. He's actually married to the second and the third at the same time. So you kind of see a pattern. It's like a lot of him getting married. Did you happen to see a photo of him? Was he like charming? You know, I don't, I actually thought he was good looking, but I'll show you a picture. I mean, he's very tan, um, like average height, average size, thick black hair and mustache. So fast forward a little bit to 2003. He then goes and proposes to another woman and he's near the Netravati River when he's proposing to this woman and she denies him. So he pushes her into the river. She starts screaming, freaking out. They're actually fishermen, people around. So they help her. They go get him. They beat him up and they hand him over to the police. That's kind of like the first glimpse of, okay, there's, there's something seriously wrong. It's kind of the first time where he has shown some violent tendencies. Yes, exactly. Here's where we kind of get conflicting accounts. By some articles, it was saying that he spent one month in jail and others said that he just went free because there was not enough evidence to do anything about it. In the article that says he went to jail, it says that he met a goldsmith there. And the goldsmith was telling him about how you use cyanide for gold plating and how it's really easy to get over the counter, um, but it's very dangerous and it can kill you in minutes. So this is where he kind of learns about cyanide. Other people say that he met that goldsmith while he was teaching. So 
not 100% on where that goldsmith came from. In 2003, he gets dismissed as a teacher because of the attempted murder of that woman. That kind of puts all the puzzle pieces together for his MO and how he goes about becoming this prolific serial killer. So starting in 2003, not too long after that attempted murder, this is where he starts killing. The way he goes about this is he'll propose... And after he proposes, let me rewind, he'll start watching these women at bus stops. And basically what he'll do is he'll try and kind of suss them out. So he looks for women who might be a little bit older, might be from a lower caste, might be from a lower socioeconomic level. Because they're from all of these different classes, they're easy targets in a way because getting married at an older age when you don't have money, it makes them more willing. So at that point, after he's kind of observed these women, he'll give them a fake name and he'll start establishing a relationship with them and start dating them. After they start dating, not really dating, dating, but you know, he's gone through this courtship, he'll propose to marry them and he'll say he doesn't need a dowry, which is huge for a lot of these women because they don't really have the money for it. And a lot of people might not want to marry them because they don't have a dowry. He'll do that and he'll say, let's elope. We'll go out of town, bring your money, your jewelry, just so we can, you know, start a new life together. When the girl agrees, he'll take them to a faraway town, like usually at least like a hundred miles from where they're actually from. They'll go stay in a lodge and then he'll coerce them into having sex with him or rape them. He'll actually track their fertility cycle. What? Yes. So he would kind of just try and see when they were ovulating and that's when he'd want to have sex with them. Because he wants children? No. So this is where it gets kind of crazy. After they have sex, he'll take them to a bus stop and say, hey, we need to get you know birth control. It can make you really nauseous. So you should take it in the bathroom. And then he'll give them a pill to take. It's actually cyanide. Oh my God. That's some shady moves. Super shady. And because most of these women are ovulating and they know their cycles, they're like, I really can't risk getting pregnant, almost all of them would just take the pill. So he would leave them there, go back to the lodge, take all of the jewelry, all of the money that they bring, and he'd just get out of there. In between these killings, he would go back to his wives, his other two wives, give them the jewelry, give them the money, and use that to support them. And neither of these two wives knew about each other. He did this for six years before getting caught. And so part of the reason why it was so hard to catch is because one, and we saw this in the, the last case too, the local police aren't communicating to each other. So they're not really seeing this pattern. And then the other is because these women are so far away from their local towns, when they put out the missing pictures, hey, have you seen this woman? No one from that village or that town recognizes the woman. And then because no one identifies the body, because no one recognizes it, they'll just process it as an unidentified death or a suicide. So it's not even like a murder case. Because of that, a lot of these bodies just get cremated very quickly. So they're not even getting a history of there's poison in these bodies. So it's it kind of like a perfect storm for him to just continue doing it. Every year, he just starts, you know, upping it because he's not getting caught. So he doesn't really think there's any danger. 
And all throughout this, he's keeping very meticulous track of all of these girls' names, their fertility cycles, as I said. And for each one he kills, he'll cross out their name in a red pen. They said he had a 2 out of 10 success rate. Fast forward a little bit, 2009. So he's been doing this, you know, from 2003, 2009, so six years. There's this rural coast town, and it's had a lot of political tensions. It's just like very, very tense in all aspects. And there's this girl, Anita, 22 years old. Um, She's a beady roller, which is like a cigarette roller, and she goes missing. So tensions are already high. This young girl goes missing. Her family is looking for her. Everyone is looking for her and no one can find her. And the police, they're really not doing very much. So one of the villagers says that it's a love jihad and that's why she went missing. Love jihad, don't put too much weight on it because when I looked it up, it says it's actually a right wing conspiracy that's Islamophobic. So I just wanted to preface by saying that. So in India, population of Muslims is lower. This concept of love jihad would be that Muslim women are trying to marry Hindus and then have a lot of children with them in order to boost the Muslim population. That's kind of part of these political tensions. It's why these villagers are saying, okay, it's a love jihad. Because of that, actually, 150 you know, of these villagers go and they're, they're saying, we're going to burn down the police station if you, know, you don't find this girl because they think that this is like a religious issue. While all of this is happening, literally the day after this girl goes missing, she's found 100 miles away and she is described as like a young girl in the bathroom. She's wearing a white off-white bridal sari, glass bangles, new gold earrings. She's found just frothing in the mouth in this bathroom stall at a bus stop. Oh my God. I know. There are a lot of images of all of the women too, and they're all like very beautiful in my opinion. (sighs) I don't know. It was just really like disturbing to see because they're all so young too. They're all in like their 20s. Is there a reason he is dressing them up as brides? Well, because they're eloping. They're coming dressed to basically get married. I see. I mean, it takes some skills to have all these women agreeing to elope with him too. Yeah, I mean, his wives, before they found out, they described him very highly. Well, one of them did, the third wife did. The second one was kind of like, he's weird, sends me money sometimes, but not really. I've had to raise these kids by myself. Oh, they had children? Yeah, he had two children with his second wife, two children with his third wife. Right after, actually, he kills Anita, he goes to a temple And he talks to a priest and he's saying, is there any puha to wash away the sins of killing a woman? So the priest kind of tells him, you know, do, do this, do that. But he thinks it's really weird. But nothing happens at that point either. They still have not connected the dots. The breakthrough comes when they start looking through the cell phone records of Anita. There is this phone number that pops up over and over and over again. So they track that phone number and it leads them to a girl, Kavari, but it turns out that she's missing. Then they start looking for her and they start looking at her cell phone records and they find another number that's popping up over and over and over again that they can't explain. And it leads them to Venuta and she's missing. So it happens again 
there's this other number that's coming up and it leads them to this girl named Pushpa and she's also missing. Oh my God. It's like a chain of missing girls. It's a chain and they at this point think this is sex trafficking. So they're trying to now look for a sex trafficker and the case is kind of blowing up. They keep, you know, tracking these numbers down, getting led to, you know, one girl out the next. And eventually they decide to look at the IMEI number, which I learned is an international mobile equipment identity. So it's like the serial number. So now they're trying to see what device has been using these numbers. It turns out he would take the SIM card of the girl that he had just killed, use it in his phone, and then use that to attack the next girl, and then use her SIM card. And that's why you're seeing it go like this, but it's all from the same device. He's thought about this, it seems like, you know, how to make this very productive. And it's weird because he's stealing their money, he's stealing the little jewelry that they have. It's kind of a weird thing. Like, is he doing this just for the money? Is he doing this for a combination of that and just some sex? Like, I don't know. They didn't really say what his motives were. Well, when he talks in interviews, he's really odd. In what way? Um, so in a lot of the interviews, he'll mix up the names of all of these girls, including his wives. Like he won't remember their names, but then he'll be very interested in how they're doing. So in one of the interviews, he turns around and he's like, oh, how's Sri Devi, his third wife? How's she doing? Does she talk fondly about me? Does she miss me? Oh, he sounds like a narcissist. Yeah, Definitely. A lot of serial killers, male serial killers, are all leaning towards the narcissist type. Yeah, I think he thought very highly of himself. When he talks about these women, he says, well, they all wanted me so badly. And they just killed themselves because I wouldn't marry them. Oh, my God. You know, I was thinking about this when you were talking about them eloping, because if he is committed in killing women, he doesn't have to go through the step of courting them and convince them to elope with him. It's almost him saying like, see, I'm so attractive. I can get any woman I want into marrying me. It's very creepy. So they use that IMEI to track his phone and they find his uncle. His uncle's like, oh, this is my nephew's phone. Basically after that, they meet this other girl who remembers him and remembers him asking her, you know, all that whole question, like, will you elope with me, blah, blah, blah. But she rejected him. So they use that girl to basically set up another arrangement and they're going to meet up at a bus stop. She kind of becomes his next target, but the police are actually in on it this time. And so when they're supposed to meet up, they arrest Mohan. So finally, he's under custody. After they arrest him, they go to his third wife's house and they find tons of cyanide, tons of jewelry. And when they question Mohan, he says off the bat, oh yeah, I killed 32 women. He just admits to it. Holy crap. So if his success rate is 2 out of 10, so he probably tried to do this with a lot more women than just 32. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's like something like 150 that he, he approached. You would think that if you're approaching that many women, you know, someone might notice, even if it's in all these towns, but I guess he was just going so far each time. 
Yeah, and also I do think that India is a very populated country. In comparison, 150 people is nothing. That's true. That's true. So he's arrested. He's in jail, and he decides to represent himself in court. Wow, he's really feeling himself. He really is. That's why when you were saying he's narcissistic, I was like, yeah. Like I was saying before, his whole defense was that these women were just so in love with him, and he didn't want to marry them because he already had two wives and it was already hard enough to support both of them, that they just killed themselves when he wouldn't marry them. It was ridiculous. The police officer in charge of prosecuting him, though, did say that he was pretty competent at finding a lot of the weaknesses in their case. Because, you know, he'd been killing for so long and so many of the bodies weren't, you know, properly investigated, there wasn't all the evidence that should have been there. And so he was kind of good at poking holes in it. But he was also stupid at the same time. He put all of the jewelry in um, a safety deposit box that linked back to his address. His first trial where he was sentenced to death was in 2013. I think there was another one in 2016. I mean, he had to go to trial like 20 times because of all of the different women that they were able to gather evidence against him for. There was someone who actually survived all of this. When she was um, given the pill, she only licked it. And so she had passed out in the bathroom, but she didn't die. But she never told anyone about it. Even in the case, um, she didn't reveal her name or anything because she wanted to just move on with her life. Does this mean that he doesn't actually check whether the woman is dead or not? He doesn't. And a lot of times it was crowded, even like there were people out. It's not like it was and there was no one there. Even with Anita, there were a ton of people who heard her fall over and he just leaves. I guess I didn't realize until now that he doesn't check if these women are dead or not. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah, I guess, too. So the woman was saying, you know, at that point, if she were to say that this happened to her, it might be harder for her to get married. And so she just didn't want to bring it up. She just, so a month later, she gets married. She moves on with her life. She just didn't talk about it again until the case comes out. She becomes a witness. Yeah, it's very similar to the other women from the last case. No one really came forward about it because I just don't think, you know, they want people to know that they've been through that. Yeah, I think when you target vulnerable people as well, it makes it even harder for them to come forward because they don't necessarily have the support or the resources that they would need. Yeah, but that's part of the reason these killers target vulnerable people because they know that even if they fail and this victim survives, they may not go to the police. I forgot which documentary it was, but I remember one of the profiler was saying that obviously it has nothing to do with the victims, but it does seem like certain type of killers are very good at picking out people that would have a hard time speak up for themselves, even if they survive. And I found that super sad. Yeah. And I mean, I think if he had targeted someone else or a different group of people, maybe he would have been caught way sooner. I mean, if you think about it, the only reason he really got caught was because of the right wingers from that one village and the political tensions. It wasn't really because of these missing girls. I guess sometimes right wing conspiracy theories have a place in this world. (laughs) 
I don't know. It's it's like if a flat earther, through their suspicion of like the earth being flat, somehow solved your murder. We do live in this world that's crazy enough for this kind of weird things to happen. I'm just glad at least that one way or another it was resolved. And okay, this is the, the last bit, but in one of the interviews where they were asking him, do you feel remorse? This is his answer. He said, every time a woman died, I felt very bad, but it only lasted for 15 to 20 days. Then another woman would come along and I would forget all about the past. And he never talked about what triggered him to go down this path. No. So it's weird because that's why I was kind of locked on in like his first three marriages. He kind of has this pattern of like, okay, I'm going to go get married. Then when he does his fourth proposal and he gets rejected, that's when it's like, okay, now I have this information about cyanide and I'm just going to keep having these marriage proposals over and over again. But what's also weird to me, though, is if that was sort of the trigger that he started killing women, it would make sense that he kills women that rejected him, right? A lot of the girls that he killed seems like they said yes. That's true. Well, there's another interview where, where they asked him, you know, why didn't you just marry them? And he said, well, I already have two wives and, you know, four kids to take care of, and it's a lot to handle. So it's hard to understand his motive. Is he in jail right now? Did he get executed? Yes. Yeah, so he got the death penalty. And then 2020, he went to trial again and got another um, life sentence. So he's put away. I don't know when he'll get executed. It's always interesting to hear about cases where the motives are not shared. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, too. They only tried him for 20 it could have been those bodies they cremated and they just don't have evidence to pin it on him. But he admitted when he got arrested that he killed 32. I don't know how India works, but, you know, in the U.S., even if they know this person did like 10 cases, but they, if they only have evidence for five cases, they can't try the guy for 10 cases because you need the evidence. You, you can't do it just on pure confession. I still find the part where he doesn't check on them if they're dead or not very, very um, crazy. I don't think I've read any cases where the killer doesn't check that. It's crazy, too, because he didn't even try and get rid of the bodies. And most of the cases you read and getting rid of the body is so important. And he just left it in plain sight in a crowd of people who could just stumble upon this body. Maybe that was part of why when, you know, it showed up in front of the police, they just didn't think that this was a murder and they just ruled it as suicides. I do wonder if that's part of his tactic or if that's just how arrogant he is, which sounds like could be. And apparently, too, in 2003, it was a lot easier to get your hand on cyanide. So that's the case of Cyanide Mohan, and that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoyed Aaliyah's story today and thank you so much for tuning back in and we will see you next time.